0: I want to uh, uh, welcome you all to, uh, to listen, uh, those of you who may be watching, uh, for some uh, thoughts leading up to, uh, to Rosh Hashanah, and really more specifically with regards to tshuva. The topic of uh, tshuva is something which is uh, an, obviously a very important uh, topic during this time of year, and I would like to present you with perhaps a different perspective on tshuva that you may not have considered uh, in the past and one which I think is uh, extremely important, extremely uh, relevant as we uh, get older and as we mature and we become more independent in terms of our thinking, in terms of responsibility for our behavior, as we take agency for for our decisions. So it's important to understand what exactly the nature of tshuva is, what does it involve, and what the expectation is for us. Uh, And really what I would like to do is I'd like to begin by exploring that with a, a very simple question. And that is, as we know, that there are ten days in which we're expected to do chuva, The asteriskumet tshuva, asteriskumet tshuva. tshuva, as you all know, begins with the uh, begins with Rosh Hashanah and concludes with Yom Kippur. Now, obviously, during the from Tzom Gedalia until or through Yom Kippur, we do a lot of chuva. We say slichos. We say a lot of vidui's. There's a lot of davening which which we do. And all of that relates very specifically to the Averas which we have done, and for trying to secure for ourselves forgiveness for those those Averas. But the two days of Rosh Hashanah, which are certainly part of the Aser chuva, so we wonder a little bit, what exactly is uh, the chuva part? Why are these included in the ten days of chuva? It should really more accurately be described as the eight days of chuva, because there's only eight days in which we're saying Vidu'i, we are saying slichus in similar types of prayers. Rosh Hashanah has absolutely nothing to do with uh, with tshuva. It has to do with Malchias. The primary theme of the day of Rosh Hashanah is making, is accepting HaKadosh Baruch Hu as the king over the entire universe and, and king over ourselves. And we don't do any tshuva at all. And the posthum actually are very opposed to even a random mention of sin or ave or chait over the course of davening during a uh, Rosh Hashanah, some people even though uh, when they say avinu uh, malkeinu, for example, on Rosh Hashanah, they exclude those lines which do, which mention averas, which mention uh, chatoim. So how could we say that Rosh Hashanah are two of the aseret sumetzuvah? It seems to be uh, somewhat uh, inaccurate. Another question, which uh, I think is important to ask, uh, and I think for for many of you at this juncture in your life. And that is, what's the nature of the day of Rosh Hashanah? I think many people have the impression as we get closer to Rosh Hashanah that it's supposed to be a scary time. Davening is very serious. We've probably heard a lot of uh, Divrei Torah and a lot of Shmuzim and Muster Shmuzim about the Yom Adin, about the Day of Judgment and the Mishpat and all of that. And how we're going to be judged for the coming year. And it's a very serious time that we, uh, that we are involved in. And that usually gives us the perspective that this is something which is a serious uh, period of time, and something which requires a lot of year, a lot of awe, and reverence, and uh, uh, traits of, related to that. And it's a day that uh, we would expect, the post can actually discusses a day perhaps of crying, as we recall the averas which we've done, the, uh, the shortcomings, the times that we messed up over the, o- over the course of the year, all the things which we regret so those could lead a person to uh, to cry. So from that perspective, it seems that Russia—it's appropriate to consider Rosh Hashanah to be a sad or at the very least a serious day on the on the calendar. You know, as much as that may be true, but the Navi actually says there's a very famous pasuk which says, "Al tivku val do not cry and do not be sad." Sashem because this is a day of, we'll say, chedva, uh, a day of rejoicing. He ma'uzchem, and it's a day of your strength. Now, obviously, if the Navi is telling us that the day of Rosh Hashan is not a day to be sad, and not a day to uh, to cry, but rather it's a day that we should rejoice, so we have to understand why exactly that is so. Seemingly, the uh, the thought of uh, of reckoning, of having a din, of having a judgment, being accountable for all of our shortcomings, all the times that we messed up, all of our alveiras, is something which is very serious, it can be very frightening, the more serious you take it, the more frightening it is, but on the other hand, the Navi's telling us that you should look at it, look at it from that perspective, so if we're not supposed to look at it as a sad day, and as a day where it's appropriate to cry, and it's really a day where we should be happy, and we should be, uh, it, it's a day of celebration, so how we to understand what that that perspective is? I would imagine that for uh, for many of us here, it's something which runs somewhat counter to what we've uh, grown up with and the impression that we've had all of these uh, all of these years. So hopefully, uh, by the time we're done in the next uh, twenty five minutes or so, we'll have the answers to these questions. And what we're going to begin the uh, the the first step that we're going to take towards resolving all of this and trying to explain the nature of the day is to explore the meaning of the word tshuva. I'm sure if I were to ask all of you what does the word tshuva mean, what's the translation of the word tshuva, so undoubtedly most if not all of you would say repentance. That's the word that we have in our mind which tells us that uh, that, uh, that that tshuva is, tshuva is a time that uh, that we repent. And I'm sure most of you uh, know that uh, have learned uh, the Rambam it's been uh, drilled into our head that the essential components of tshuva are, there's really three of them, is going to be number one, is going to be charata, is going to be regret for the averas which we have done. Then we have to do vidui, we have to confess those sins, we have to acknowledge them, and verbalize them before Hashem, in a regretful manner. And then we have the kabbalah, we have to go ahead and we have to commit in the future, that we're going to go ahead, and we're going to improve our ways, and we're not going to go back to those averas. So charata is essentially the past, the Kabbalah Alasid is on the future, and the vidui is something which we're saying in the uh, in the present now. So we converge these three different: uh, the HaYehovah VeYeha, the, the past, the uh, the present, and the future, and they all come together as is uh, part of uh, as part of tshuva. And when we think about the Kabbalah Alasid, when we think about the commitment that we make to the future, not to repeat those averas again. I think everybody here is old enough to have had uh, experience enough. Rosh Hashanah and Tshuvas and Yom Kippurs to know perfectly well that we may have made commitments year in and year out to improve our behavior, to do things better, to do, stop doing things which we don't want to do, which we know we're not supposed to do. And yet it seems that year after year after year, we're back in the same place. We're still saying, I shouldn't speak Rosh about somebody. We're still saying, I shouldn't get so angry. We're still saying, I should be nicer to people. We're still saying, I should daven better. All of those things which we wanted, which we want to do for this year, we wanted to do last year, in the year before that, in the year before that, and the year before that. So why isn't it working? Why isn't our, certainly the things which we feel, we, which we've done, I imagine we all have sincere regret for those things. We don't want to do Averas. Nobody here, nobody who's listening here wants to do Averas. And certainly everybody's sincere in terms of their commitment to the future. that I hope, and I'm going to try my best, to to not do those things in the future so why do we fall short where's the weakness where's the 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 shortcoming where we seem to be failing year in and year out and as we get older and older and uh, if a person reflects on that they get into their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s I can tell you that people who are older have the same feeling that you're feeling now that I've been doing this Rosh Hashanah, Aser Tshuva, Yom Kippur thing for decades and decades and decades. And every year I tell myself again, I'm going to try, I'm going to try, I'm going to be better, I'm going to be better, I'm going to be better. And somehow when we roll back around to Rosh Hashanah the next year, we're trying to make the same commitments again and again and again. So where are we, where are we falling short? So I think where we're falling short is that we have the impression that the method, the mechanics by which we're going to go ahead and improve and change our behavior in the future is by exercising self-control. People think that all you need to do is if you have better self-control, then you'll be able to uh, stop doing all those things that, uh, that, uh, that you know you're not supposed to do. If you have better self-control, better self-discipline, you'll be able to do the things that you want to do better. You'll make time for Shurim. You'll make time to daven. You'll try and daven with greater sincerity. You'll do all the things that you want to do. If you could just have better self-control, and if you could just have a better sense of self-discipline, and that'll make it all better. And the truth is, is that it's not a matter, it's not a function of self-control. Self-control is not where our avoda is going to come from. That's not where our growth is going to, is going to emanate from. I'm sure all of you are familiar with the, uh, the saying from Rabbi Sol Salanter, that it's easier to learn through all of shahs than it is to change one Mida. It's a famous statement. I imagine that everybody's uh, heard that, uh, that before. But do you ever stop for a moment and wonder what exactly he means by that? Learning Shas at the, the pace that Daf Yomi learns Shas, so it takes seven and a half years, 2,711 days of anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour a day, every day without, the, without exception in order to finish Shas. That's an incredible amount of time, 2,711 hours, give or take, in order to go ahead and finish all of Shas. So that's a, a huge undertaking, and that's something which requires incredible, incredible commitment. And if all I want to do is, um, make sure to, uh, to daven on time on a regular basis. Or I want to make sure that I'm going to be kind to others, even when they annoy me, even when they get under my skin. So it's just a matter of self-control. So why can't I have the necessary self-control to go ahead and stop doing those things, stop saying those things, which I know are hurtful to people? Why do we have so, why do we struggle with that so much? Why is it something that's so hard for us? When all we need to do is just, just stop. Why can't we just stop? What, what, what's the problem? So let's take it as an example, just to give us a good frame of reference of what we're trying to address over here. Let's take a, a, a random uh, character trait, such as anger. Somebody who has a, get, just gets angry very, very quickly, like the Mishnah Perkeelvos describes them, somebody who's Noach Lichos somebody who gets just uh, the smallest little uh, uh, offense, the smallest little remark that anybody says. So immediately g- they go ballistic and they go crazy and they get angry, and it takes a long time for them to calm down. So what do we expect that person to do? When we look at that angry person, when we're observing them getting angry at everybody and at everything, and just they're, they're, they're just struggling because they get so angry and their anger is so, so strong, so we often look at that person. We observe that person. We say, why can't they just control themselves? Why can't they just not be angry? I don't understand why they keep getting angry like that. And it's, it, 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 it mystifies me. I'm, 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 I don't understand why the person just can't control themselves. And what's wrong over here is, as we're looking at that person, and we're saying, why can't they control themselves? What we're thinking in our mind, the premise of our mind, the assumption that we make in our mind, is that the person is exercising b'chira. That the person is is making a conscious choice to go ahead and get angry. And if you take a step back and you take a moment and you think about it, it's actually crazy. Why would anybody go ahead and think that, why would we think that every time that they get angry, that they're making a conscious choice? If we assume that they're making a conscious choice, what happens is somebody says to them, you're a moron. And at that moment, in that fraction of a second before they explode, because as we observe it, they explode immediately as soon as somebody calls them a moron. So but before they go ahead and they have that explosion, we think in our minds, the way we respond to them is that we think in their mind is that this angry person realizes he has a choice. He says, "Hmm, what am I going to do now? The person just called me a moron. There's two approaches. I could either on the one hand I could be calm. I could be cool. I could be collected. I could decide not to respond. I could be the bigger person and the one who's not going to uh, to get angry. And that would be one way of responding or handling the person who called me a moron. Or I could go ballistic on them. Which should I do? Should I be calm? Should I be ballistic? Should I be calm? Should I be ballistic? You know what? I think anger is going to be the best approach this time. I think anger is going to get what I want. It's going to send my message across in the clearest manner that I possibly can given this particular moment in this situation. And therefore, yeah, I'm going to make the decision, the firm decision, I'm going to be angry. And then in that fraction of a second, when the person decided to go angry, then what we see on the outside is just their ballistic explosion. Do we think that's what's going on? Does anybody think that that's what's going on? Think about yourself, the things which you realize that you regret that, uh, that, that you did, They're something that you regret that you said, or response to somebody else that you regret. When you think back upon that, did you actually make a conscious decision to say that hurtful remark? Did you make a conscious decision to go ahead and decide, you know what? This is something which I don't care what the consequence is. It's important to be said. And even if it's not even going to be in my best interest, it's going to come back to harm me. I'm going to do it anyways, because I'm making a conscious decision to be mean, to be cruel, to say harmful words, to say harmful uh, ideas. Does anybody do that? Of course not. We don't see those things as making decisions when it's ourselves. We don't think of it in terms of, I just exercised my bechira, exercised my free choice, and I decided I was going to be mean and hurtful. I decided I was going to be short-tempered. I decided I was going to go ahead and be angry. We don't make those decisions. If we had, if all we, if we had that one moment in which we could think about different options of how we're going to respond... We'd never be mean, and we'd never be cruel, and we'd never be hurtful, and we wouldn't do any of those negative things which we find ourselves doing frequently enough. We'd never do that. Have you ever had the experience where as you're going crazy or ballistic or saying something which is hurtful or vengeful or something like that, as you're saying it in your mind, you're saying, why am I doing this? This isn't going to help. This isn't gonna solve anything. This isn't gonna bring us any closer to resolution. This is just gonna make it more difficult in, 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 as we move on. And yet while that's going through your head, realizing that you shouldn't say it, you're still saying it. Where does it come from? Why, is that, why, why does that happen? We all know, everybody knows about themselves. You know what triggers you. You know that there's certain things which people could say to you, or certain motions that people could do towards you, Or whatever it happens to be, we know that there are things which trigger us, which don't necessarily trigger somebody else. Why is it that sometimes I get triggered and somebody else doesn't get triggered by that exact same thing? And then there's other things where they get triggered and I don't get triggered. Ever wonder where that comes from? Where does that emanate from? That there are some things which are triggering for you and, but they're not triggering for other people. I heard a beautiful uh, Marshall as far as uh, this is concerned. And that is, is that every person, you have to be aware that every person has their sunburn. What do we mean? What do I mean when I say every person has their sunburn. So generally, if you see somebody that you haven't seen in a long time, that you're excited to see a very close friend or something like that. So you may, when you see them, you may give them a strong hug. You may go ahead and give them a, a slap on the back or something like that. And for most people, 99 people out of 100, when you do so, it's well-received. Who doesn't like a nice, warm, strong hug? Who doesn't like a nice uh, uh, slap on the back or something like that as a way of showing affection, as a way of showing connection? Everybody likes human touch. Everybody enjoys that, uh, that contact. That's the way that we connect with one another on a physical level. Except if the person was just out in the sun and they have a sunburn. If they have a sunburn and you go ahead and you give them a strong hug, you may hit that sunburn That's going to hurt. And if you go ahead and give a slap on the back and they have a sunburn, that's really, really, really going to cause them pain. Now, it's nothing you did wrong. How are you supposed to know that they have a sunburn? But people have sunburns. Everybody has their emotional sunburn, which, if you touch it, if you hit it, which by most people, it wouldn't cause any harm or any pain whatsoever. But if you hit their sunburn, it causes them a lot of pain. What about your own sunburn? Our focus right now is on ourselves. Where do my sunburns come from? Where do those triggers come from? So on a very simple level, the place that the triggers come from is past experiences in our lives where we've been hurt and we've been pained and we've been wounded emotionally. Everybody has that. Nobody survives childhood without pain, without, uh, without wounds, without things which happened, which stay with us through our childhood, through our teenage years, into our adulthood and ultimately if we don't address them they can stay with us for the rest of our lives one of the wonderful things if you look at the little children little children are fascinated because they haven't had enough experience in the world to to become numb to things or to know better about things so almost every child that you see a young child that you see they love to sing they enjoy singing that's uh, that that, I, i don't know why i don't know why singing is something that children particularly enjoy doing but children and when, they, when they're involved in self-play and that they're at that perfect, cute, yummy age, they go ahead and as they're playing by themselves, they're singing. They could be singing what, what they learned in school that day. They could be singing some davening, whatever they're doing, they're singing and they enjoy it. And then at some point, some sibling or some friend or some well-meaning adult, and I put well-meaning in quotation marks, some well-meaning adult tells them, you're not a very good singer. I enjoy that you're trying to sing, but you can't carry a tune. You don't know any of the words. And if other people are around and they all sort of get a chuckle that Schleimele is singing and he can't carry a tune and he doesn't even know, know the words, Schleimela's is never going to sing again. Now, nobody looks at it at that moment as if they're wounding the child, as if they're causing pain to the child, as if they're hurting the child. They think they're saying, listen, Schlumberger, you don't want to be singing like that because eventually when you get to first grade or second grade or third grade, other people realize that you don't sing very well, you can't carry a tune, and you may not want to be trying to be the loudest one who's singing when you're not the best quality singer. So you may think that you're helping them, and in some ways it may actually be helped, but if in the process the child is embarrassed, the child is humiliated, the child is wounded by that, that pain remains with them. And then as they go through their teenage years and they go into their adult lives, they're going to carry that wound with them. It's going to be a scar which remains with them. And when things come up related to singing, they're going to be triggered. They'll be at a Shabbos table during seminary, or there'll be a Shabbos table. Uh, you know, some relatives in Eretz Yisrael, or perhaps even after Eretz Yisrael, and so they'll say, Shlaibala, why don't you start a Shabbos negen for us? Shlomo is going to freeze. He's not going to know what to do. He hasn't sung out loud since he was four years old when he was made fun of because he was singing so uh, so beautifully. Other people didn't uh, didn't appreciate it as much as uh, as much as Shlomo did, and therefore they said something to him, and he has a scar from that. And then when he's 20, 21, 22, and somebody at the Shabbos table, can even be, he's, he's meeting his Kala's parents, he's spending the first Shabbos by his Kala's parents, and his future Shavar goes in and says, why don't you start the, you know, a, a Shabbos negative for us? And he's just going to freeze, he's not going to know what to do. He's never done that. He refused to sing in public, he never takes the yamud he never does any of those things, because he was wounded. And he responds in a way which everybody says, whoa, wh- wh- why did he so adamantly refuse to go ahead and sing a Shabbos thing? Why did, why did he, why did he re- respond so strongly like that? It doesn't make any sense. But it's not as if Schleimele at 22 or 25 made a conscious decision to, to respond that way. He was responding to the trigger. He was being triggered by this event, by the pain which he experienced earlier in life. In almost all of the things which we do, the shortcomings which, which we have, all the, the events which trigger us, what's really happening is our brain is being reminded of some earlier time in our lives when we were pained and wounded and we were scarred and somebody's touching it. Somebody's hitting that now, they, that now recently opened, just opened raw wound and everybody knows if you touch a raw open wound, it's gonna be incredibly, incredibly painful. That's what triggering is all about. Triggering is all about not the event in the moment, per se. It's the fact that the event in the moment is taking us into the past. It's taking us back to that time where this trigger was put in place, where we were pained and wounded and scarred. And now what's happening now is reminding us of that. We may not have the consciousness to be able to connect it to that, but the brain doesn't forget. The mind doesn't forget those, uh, those events where we were hurt earlier in life. And that's what being triggered is all about. Anything that you're triggered about in the present is connected to something which happened in the past. And when the angry person responds with anger, it's not an exercise of a chiroch khashis. He's not really making a conscious choice between a calm response and an angry response. Something triggered him. And when we get triggered, we go into defensive mode. And the anger is a way of being able to push away that pain. It's a way to scare off that pain, so that somebody's getting too close. Somebody's about to go ahead and cross that line, which is going to cause me intense, intense pain—emotional pain—that's going to open up that wound again. And I can't have anybody opening up that wound. It's just too painful. So therefore, I'm going to explode in anger. And if I can explode in anger, I'll make sure that everybody stays far away. And nobody's going to touch that open wound and cause me any more pain. And we can apply that to all sorts of, all the triggers which we have, all the triggers which we have, what we need to do is the avoda, the work which we're supposed to do is to figure out where it comes from. I'm sure everybody here has heard the phrase, if you've ever talked to a mentor, a Rebetzin, a, a Rebbe, or a Rav, or something like that, he said, listen, there's something which I, which, I, which I want to do, I want to, I want to be better at. So you hear the phrase, you gotta work on your midos. Imagine everybody who's, uh, who's listening or watching, has heard their phrase, you gotta work on your midos. What does it mean to work on your midos? What did Rabbi Stra mean when he said, it's easier to learn all of shahs than to change one mida? It's not an easy process to reflect. It's not an easy process to be introspective and to think about where these things came from. Why am I so triggered by these words? Why am I so triggered by these events? Why am I so triggered? Why do I respond so strongly and forcefully and before I even have a chance to think about it, before I have a chance to exercise my Bechira, I'm already triggered, I'm, off, I'm already off and running. That's a hard process. It's a hard process because we need to spend the time, we need to be able to think about where these emotions are coming from. What are they trying to protect? After the fact, you could say to yourself, if I had just been quiet, and I let that person call, call me a moron, what would be so bad? Usually what it means is somebody very close to you, somebody who loved you very much, caused you pain by calling you a moron. And that pain was unbearable as a child, but there was nothing you could do to escape it. So you're a child, you're dependent upon, you can't go ahead and you can't fight off all of the adults in your life at that time. So there was nothing you could do to, to defend yourself, but that doesn't mean that you weren't wounded and scarred, and perhaps wounded and scarred very deeply. We all are, as we said. Nobody escapes childhood without scrapes and scars all over the place. But our job as adults is to go ahead and think about those triggers and to figure out why, what would happen if I would just let the person call me a name. Why, why do I need to respond to that? Why do I take what that person said seriously? What are they saying, which reminds me of something which caused me pain earlier in life? And that's the avoda. And when we figure that out, and we understand that, we, when we're curious about that, and we look at that with an open mind, not in the moment when we actually get triggered, but afterwards, spend some time reflecting on that. Why did I respond that way? What would happen if, if I just let it go? How would that make me feel? Why would I feel that way? And if we begin to do that, I vote, we begin to do that work of reflection and introspection as far as what these things are, then we realize that these are just reactions. The anger is not representative of who I actually am. Anger is just a response, it's a defense mechanism of some sort, but just a response to a situation, it's a response to my getting triggered, it doesn't represent who I really am. My authentic self, my core self, the real nishama which I have, doesn't need to get angry because it's confident in who it is. It's comfortable with who it is. It can be calm and confident and it can be curious and could look at things, it could be compassionate towards others, even when they go ahead and they say something which, which, is, which, which is hurtful, because in all likelihood if they're saying something which is hurtful, they were triggered by something. And therefore they, they are being defensive about something and this is their way of defending themselves, defending their pain and making sure that they shouldn't have to experience pain like that anymore. In that regard, I don't really see tshuva as a process of repentance. Yes, that is a part of it, but I see tshuva really as a recovery of one's authentic self. of resolving the issues which we have, the triggers which we have, understanding them, being curious about them, understanding them. And once one is curious and understands them and why they're there and what role they're trying to play, what they're trying to protect me from, then I could say to them, you know what, I can handle it. I don't need to get triggered by somebody calling me a moron because I know I'm not a moron. I don't need to go ahead and respond to somebody who says that I'm ugly, or I'm fat, or anywhere, I'm stupid, or any one of the things which a person may say, or incompetent, or incapable, or any of those things, I'm annoying, any one of those things, I don't need to respond because I know it's not true. And I'm comfortable with who I am, I'm comfortable with my core self, and I don't need to respond. And that's why the days of Rosh Hashanah are, (inaudible) there's no reason to cry, there's no reason to be sad, Those things which we regret, which we want to improve, we haven't improved until now because we thought it was an exercise of self-control. But it's not an exercise of self-control. It's really an exercise in trying to understand who we are. Who is my authentic self? How could I recover? How could I get back my authentic self, the authentic self of who I was before I became wounded and before I was scarred and before I was injured and before I suffered all of that, uh, that pain? That's what we're trying to get back to. We're trying to get through, work our way through all of the, uh, the, the stuff which surrounds us and covers up the authentic self, the pureness Nesham which HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave to us from Tachas Kisei from directly beneath his, uh, his, his, his throne. The Aftar, which we read on Shabbat Shuva says, Shuvah Yisrael We're supposed to return all the way until God, all the way until God, Before I sinned the other day, I wasn't with God. So how could it be that tshuva is going to go ahead and bring me all the way back to God? But it makes perfect sense now. Because tshuva isn't just about undoing the aveyer, which I did yesterday or the day before the day before that. Tshuva is about recovering my authentic self, becoming in touch with my authentic self, introducing myself, becoming familiar and curious about my authentic self. What What are their qualities? If I was able to just let loose, and I didn't have the inhibitions, and I didn't have all of the protections and all of those things which don't allow me to be my authentic self, what would I look like? Who would I be? That's the most important part of tshuva. It's true. Eventually we get around to, on days 3 to 10 of the Yasser Shemit we get around to confessing, we'll get around to all of that. There'll be plenty of time for that. But before we can get to that, the first thing we need to do is we need to be able to look at ourselves honestly. Look at ourselves honestly from the perspective of seeing this is HaKadosh Baruch Hu and this is where we are. He's the Melech and we are his servant. And as his servant, he's given us everything which we need to do to be able to be successful. And if I'm not being successful, that's a reflection of the fact that I'm not being authentic to myself. I'm not being honest with myself. I'm not being, uh, I'm not being uh, loyal being loyal to what it is that Baruch Hu wants me to be and the various traits which he gave me and the circumstances which he gave me, because too much stuff has accumulated, too much schmutz has accumulated, which is getting in the way of my neshama from being able to shine to shine, uh, to shine, out. And that's the avod of this time. The avod of this time isn't self-control. Self-control may be a small part, a, a small part of it, but the much, much bigger part of it is to be reflective to be introspective, to think about who we are, to think about what we can be, and what are those things which are standing in the way, which are triggering me, which don't allow my authentic self to be able to uh, to be able to shine through. Person may not be able to carry a tune, but they may be t- incredibly inspired as they sing. Why deny them of that? Why can't the person just go ahead and sing because they enjoy singing and they feel connected to the boreolum, to the to the creator of the world through singing? Why only those people who are blessed with a good voice do they have the right to go ahead and to connect to God through singing? Everybody should have that right. And we should all have the right to connect to, the God, to, to God in the way which is true to our authentic selves. And that's what we're trying to recalibrate around this time of year, is not to be somebody else, not to add more layers of inauthentic things surrounding us, but to go ahead and sift our way through all of these protectors which we put up, all of the triggers which are there to be able to get past them so I can actually be the true authentic self, which HaKadosh Baruch Hu uh, wants me to be. I hope that uh, this is, uh, is helpful in terms of uh, uh, giving a perspective as far as where we're going uh, for tshuva, for Rosh Hashanah as we move forward. And I hope if anybody has uh, any, uh, any questions, any comments, uh, would like uh, me to clarify something, explain something further, uh, feel free to reach out uh, to, uh, to me. Uh, leave my, uh, my number, you can text me, you can WhatsApp me, it's, uh, the number is 847-338-9065. Uh, and if I don't have, if I don't get to hear from you before Rosh Hashanah or whatever, so, or even if I do, I hope everybody has a k'sivah chasimah a good ben shior, a year of good health, a year of bracha, a year of hatzlacha, a year of mazel, a year of uh, of uh, of good things, and most of all, a year of tshuva, tshuva in the sense of recovery of your authentic self. Have a k'sivah tova, a good